Hi, I'm Doug Schultz Carlson. I am the artistic director of the Great River Shakespeare Festival, uh, where I have directed and acted in many of Shakespeare's plays. And welcome to this podcast where we are going to talk about the major themes uh, of Macbeth. And to do that, I brought along two of my friends. Hey there, I'm Victoria Nassif. I'm an actress and I played one of the witches in this production of Macbeth. And I'm Victoria Teague. We've got two Victorias uh, today. And I am a text coach and a dramaturg. And we sort of talked about those jobs in our other supplementary podcast. Um, but a dramaturg is often somebody who will go in and do research on uh, the play, perhaps on what was happening at the time it was written or some of the stuff that's in the play. So we're going to start with a little bit of that with Macbeth. So Macbeth was uh, written in 1606, which was a really interesting time in England. It was three years after James VI of Scotland became the king of England. And so he was then called James I after the death of Queen Elizabeth I, who died uh, childless. So the play came about as James I was seeking the union of England and Scotland as Great Britain, as James continued to serve as the king of Scotland while he was also the king of England. So it was a really topical uh, thing to do a Scottish play at this point in history. I was just going to ask you why you would choose to set this. I mean, we're writing a play about ambition, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but why set it in Scotland? So is that the main reason? Is that the main reason for setting it in Scotland? It's just because it makes the king happy because it's his home country? Sure. I mean, I don't know. I think, you know, King James was uh, Shakespeare and his company's um, patron, so it was quite important to keep your patron happy, and to do a play about Scotland would have probably done that. However, it is a really interesting Scotland that we find ourselves in in this play. It's a kind of violent place. It's dangerous. There's this wildness to it. There's like a, a geographic isolation, a remote kind of nature that's implied all the way from the beginning. And so it, it is interesting that the the Scotland that we find ourselves in, right? Like loyalty is a precarious thing at the top of the play. There's an armed rebellion. There's a thane that is, uh, that is shown to be a traitor. So we find ourselves in an unsettling place. But it's also interesting because at the end of the play, right, Malcolm can't return to take Scotland back without the aid of England. So it's mm. kind of a pro-union of Scotland-England play, which would have been pleasing to the king <laughs> at this time. Yeah, well, you really, um, I mean, you really hear that in the end because Malcolm comes in and he says he's going to make them earls instead of being mm -hmm. thanes anymore. So there's some kind of change in the government. What was the government like in Scotland at the time, what, like, what are thanes? Yeah, so uh, so a thane is, uh, they're mentioned throughout the play. Thane, a thane was a man who held land directly from the king in return for loyalty and military service. So they were kind of like a governor of like different regions of Scotland. So you hear about thanes of different places in Scotland. Um, so that's what a thane is. But I think another concept that's um, helpful to understand when listening to Macbeth is the difference between uh, tanistry and primogeniture, which are both forms of succession that are that are helpful in understanding um, what goes on in this play. So like tanistry was okay, a form this is of- why uh, we have, oh, yeah. <laughs> this is why we have dramaturgs, tanistry and primogeniture. Okay, cool. Tell us. Yes. <laughs> so tanistry was a form of succession in Scotland, where the next ruler was elected by family heads. 
and a tannist was also elected. So the, uh, the tannist was the heir in case the king died. Mm-hmm. But the heir was often not actually the king's son, which is what we sort of come to understand today about like how English man- monarchies work. Um, the crown would actually descend to the eldest and most worthy of the same blood, who could be a brother, a nephew, a cousin. So it it was an interesting system that often led to like the most ambitious person becoming the next king. It often caused a lot of trouble and a lot of violence within families, but it was uh, it was the form of succession in Scotland for a very long time, and it was actually former formally abolished in Scotland by James the First. Hmm. So uh, the current king of England, when the play was written, was the person who abolished this this succession. Um, And then the English system of primogenitor was adopted, which is the right of the firstborn legitimate child to inherit the uh, parent's role as ruler. Okay, So that's sort of what was happening. Yeah, so in the play, when Duncan says that his son Malcolm is going to be the heir Mm -hmm. apparent, because he does that way early in the play, you're saying that's not the way it was supposed to work. Not necessarily. And in fact, it would often make people really mad (laughs) when a ruler did that. If they automatically went to their son, like people would get upset about that because sort of like, uh, I guess, you know, ideally the way that the succession method worked, it would balance out who was the ruler at different times, like from within these families. So it wasn't always the same line. Like that was essentially how it was, I think, supposed to work. It didn't always do that. But um, I think it speaks a lot to how in the play, when Duncan nominates his son, Malcolm, to be his successor, Macbeth actually has a little bit of reason to be upset because it's revealed to us that Macbeth is a relative of Duncan. So it's, you know, it makes sense that Macbeth would have thought that he could become the king, which is also a reason why when Malcolm leaves, and Macbeth becomes king, that sort of makes sense at the time. Mm. It, you know what I mean? Like, there's not, like, a big hubbub of, like, why is it the Macbeth becoming king? Like, it actually sort of made sense. Um, but it's interesting because I think there's, like, a melding of the two systems in this play. Uh, so it kind of shows, like, an English playwright going in <laughs> and melding these two forms of succession together at a time when it was a really topical conversation. Yeah, but it's really interesting because the whole beginning of the play goes out of its way to say what a great fighter Macbeth is, how he sort Mm -hmm. of saved the day in the middle of the battle. And yeah, so Macbeth really does have a good reason to think that he should be king. And then this kid, Malcolm, who didn't do anything on the battlefield at all, is all of a sudden being named king. It's just interesting. I guess when I first read the play, I thought, well, Macbeth is just a jerk. He killed the king. But actually, he's kind of, he actually kind of has a right to, like, he doesn't have a right to kill the king, but he's not so far out of line. Yeah, he's perhaps the most worthy in terms of tanistry. It just, the most worthy person isn't chosen, and he thinks that's wrong, and it's his wrong to write. Right. So it kind of sets him up like he's doing a little bit of wrong, but he's going to put the society back in order, and then he can just kind of go back to it, Hmm. which seems like a very different play than if he's just purely pure ambition. Mm Mm-hmm. Totally. All right, great. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. And Doug, while we were recording the podcast, you kept mentioning uh, equivocation and the gunpowder plot. And I want you to tell me more about those things because I don't know much about them. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, I find this totally fascinating and I find it really fascinating in connection with Macbeth. And I know Victoria Teague knows even more about the specific history of this. So for instance, (laughs) I just learned that the gunpowder plot happened in 1605. The play is written in 1606. So it's just before and very newly after James I had taken over. And the gunpowder plot was this. There was a plan. So uh, there was a plan uh, that was that was. I think they figured out it was it was mostly Jesuits who were involved in this to try and take down the government of England. And the plan was, and this is going to sound crazy, but it's actually true. They were going to dig a tunnel under Parliament so that when Parliament was meeting and the king was there, sort of all of the nobles, all of the important people in England were all in the same place at the same time. They were going to put gunpowder in this tunnel underneath the room where that was all happening and blow it up. And they would destroy the entire government of England. And the plot was discovered in a very strange way, supposedly by James I himself. So he gets this letter that says, or they discovered a letter or something Something, and it said in the letter that a blow would be struck. And he went from a blow mm. would be struck to saying, well, maybe somebody is going to dig a tunnel under Parliament and blow everything up. Like, <laughs> why would you think that? But somehow that was his idea. And it proved to be true. And he kind of saved the whole government. A regular so all of a sudden he's like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wait, so yeah, why they went they down wanna... there and they found it? <laughs> it was crazy. That all these barrels of gunpowder. That's some Game of Thrones stuff. Uh, why did they want yeah. to destroy the government? Well, okay, now Victoria Teague, maybe you should talk about that because it's it's about it's about Catholicism and Protestantism, isn't it? Yeah, at the time, you know, in and leading up to this, it was considered treason to practice Catholicism mm. and to hold the Pope as the spiritual leader because Queen Elizabeth the First, who was the monarch right before King James was considered like the head of the church and the state. So, you know, like Queen Elizabeth I and the Protestant, like that was the faith, right? You were required to go to church. You could get in trouble for not going to church. And so um, there was a lot of like Catholic persecution at this time. So the idea with this was literally to restore the Catholic monarchy from the Church of England, which I also think says a lot about like you know, in America, the idea of separation of church and state. And like, this was a prime example of how that was not the case, right? Like it was so mixed up together um, in terms of, of what, um, what religion you were required to practice. So that was, that was why they wanted to do it. Huh. Okay. But where it left people was, of course, everybody's talking about this. I mean, this is the big event. So mm-hmm. so because it had just happened and there were a whole bunch of plays that were written that were gunpowder plot plays. So it's kind of a genre. And the weird thing is we only have one gunpowder plot play left that we ever do, and it's Macbeth. But there are things about it's as if, you know, you're doing a Western and everybody knows if you're doing a Western, there's going to be a gunfight, like there's going to be a shootout. There's going to be somebody's riding across the prairie into the sunset or, you know, like there's certain conventions of a Western that we all know. There were conventions of gunpowder plot plays that everybody would have known, but we only have one of them. So we don't even see those as it, it just becomes this weird thing in seeing Macbeth. Hmm. But even down to like certain words that are going to come up in the play. We talked last time, um, but that this blow should be the be all in it. Like we talked about that word, that word blow is significant because it was in the letter. Mm. And also the word trains, Malcolm is going to say in his scene, he says, by these trains, he has sought to win me over. He was talking about Macbeth at that point and trains because they were using trains to move the gunpowder down the tunnel. So the word trains is a 
significant word and the audience would have gone, oh, w- w- that is referring to the gunpowder plot. <laughs> wow, we like a lot it's of so guns. crazy. And there's there's so much there's so much of it today that I think even um, even reading and listening to Macbeth today goes over your head like we don't know it doesn't and I, I which also speaks a lot to the way that um, that Shakespeare was writing pop culture right like sitting in that audience at Shakespeare time would have been a crazy experience because they would have been like this is our pop culture this is our news mm-hmm. this is what's happening all of these words all of these things like people would have been like oh my gosh that's from the trial like oh my gosh that's from the thing and um it's just it's very it's very interesting but there is one i mean doug do you want to talk about the idea of equivocation like that's a big thing that i think becomes a theme of macbeth as well yeah definitely because i think the whole play is about equivocation so equivocation is the idea that um it's it's kind of the idea that you you are lying but you're not really lying you're sort of lying by admission you say, um, did you spill the milk on the floor? And you say, "You say, uh, well, it sure looks like somebody spilled milk on the floor. And I didn't say <laughs> that I didn't spill milk on the floor, but I also didn't admit to it. Like, I didn't directly lie, but I also didn't tell the truth. So that's equivocation. And the question became, in order to stop this plot, like they're worried about, well, what if somebody tries to do this again and blow up the government? In order to stop that plot, it would be useful to infiltrate these groups of Jesuits that were planning this thing. But in order to do that, the first question is going to be, are you a Jesuit? And you have to somehow lie. Now, we're really used to lying in our modern life because we get lied to all the time. I mean, commercials lie to you. If a commercial says, this is the best car ever built, you don't believe that. You know you're being lied to, right? Mm. But at the time, lying was a sin. So that was a big deal. And it was a really serious question. So the really serious question is, is it okay to lie a little bit in order to protect everybody. Am I allowed to say, am I allowed to lie and say, you know, are you a Jesuit? Well, I definitely believe there are Jesuits. And that would get you into the group. You know, you haven't really lied, but you've kind of lied. But then once you're in the group, then you find out about the plot and then maybe you could save some lives. Mm -hmm. So would that be okay to do a little bit of evil in order to do more good later on? And the play is, yeah, go ahead, Victoria. Well, and that is what priests were doing on trial in these the trials that happened because of for the gunpowder plot. These priests were getting up in front of like, you know, and and as they were as they were trying to talk about their involvement, they were equivocating (laughs) and they were using it as like a logic to get themselves uh, to save themselves at the same time. So it was like a lot. It's just fascinating to think about it in terms of um of they were trying to protect themselves, they were trying to protect others, and they were trying to not lie. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right, Doug. Like it, the idea of swearing an oath in Shakespeare means something different than we can ever understand it mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it and it's going to come up in the play a bunch. I mean, the porter when the porter comes in, he's mm-hmm. talking about lying all the time. There's 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 equivocation all the way through that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. But then really significantly in that Malcolm scene where Macduff is going to go to England to try and figure out whether Malcolm would be a worthy king to come in. And Malcolm lies about who he is. He says I he says all these things about what a terrible person he is to see how Macduff is going to react to that. And Macduff does react and go, oh, that's terrible. You can't possibly be king. And that gives Malcolm confidence that that Macduff is actually an honorable person. But he had to lie to do it. He had to lie about himself. So Macduff gets to the end of the scene and he's such and he says such welcome and unwelcome things. 
You know, like, right. I don't know if I can trust somebody who's capable of lying, who's capable of deceiving me, even if it's for a good purpose of finding out that I'm an honorable man. Mm. I, just don't, I don't know what to do about that. And so much of the play, it feels to me, is about what is it like to live in a world where people are going to lie to each other, where you just can't believe people anymore? Hmm. Do you feel like the play comes down in support of or against equivocation, or does it just investigate that? I think it, I think it invest, I mean, yeah, I think it just investigates. I think it comes down pretty firmly against the idea that you can do a little bit of evil and then it's going to turn out all right in the end. Mm -hmm. But the equivocation part, I think, I, I think, I mean, we talk about Shakespeare as being this writer that's right on the cusp of the modern world. And I think it's bringing us into the modern world where it's an, in, an inevitability. Mm. Like you can't not lie. It is impossible to never tell a lie in the modern world. You just can't live that way. But it makes it really hard and really stressful for us to live because we can't believe each other anymore. Mm. Yeah. All right, so we've been talking a lot about uh, history and about what was going on when Shakespeare was writing this play. So we want to transition and talk a little bit more about some of the themes of the play. And to start, something that we've been thinking about a lot is how masculinity and ambition play into Macbeth. And I'm going to toss it over to Victoria Nassif to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I talked. I think I talked a little bit in the last, in the other supplemental podcast about Lady M and her journey with ambition and the fact that in that speech after she receives the letter from Macbeth that tells her the prophecy of he will be king. She asks the evil spirits to take her femininity, to turn her milk to gall so that she may be ambitious and do the perhaps evil deeds that ambition requires to get what you need. Um, and I think that that's really interesting. And I think the way she uses um, the idea of masculinity and all that it, uh, specifically toxic masculinity and all that that holds to keep Macbeth on path and toward ambition is really interesting. Like we have that conversation where he's sort of like talked himself out of it. And then she, she threatens him in many different ways, but she specifically says, when you durst do it, then you were a man. And to mm. be more than what you were, you would be so much more the man. Um, she, basically strips him of his manhood and makes fun of him until he says, no, I'm a man. I'm going to do it. I'll kill the king. Fine. Um, right. And that works. idea of questioning it. Right. Yeah. The tactic is super effective and one that's used throughout the play with other men. And one of the moments that I love most in this play is I feel like the only man who sort of resists that tactic is Macduff in the scene mm. with Ross and uh, Malcolm when he's just found out that his wife and children have been brutally murdered. And I'm trying to find it in the script. Um, I think Malcolm says, dispute it like a man. And mm -hmm. Macduff says, I shall do so, but I must first feel it as a man. Um, which I think is, that, that, is the, that is like one of the antidotes of toxic masculinity, right? It's like allowing men to feel and to be vulnerable and to have emotions and to be ruled by them. Um, emotions other than anger or I, I don't know what I call ambition and emotion. Um, so I love Macduff as the foil to Macbeth in that way. And he's yeah, the one who is able to ultimately 
bring him down too in the end. And and Shakespeare very specifically gives him that moment of being able to feel it like a man. I, I that strikes me a lot in the play as well to see the behavior of some of the men and what happens to them versus somebody like Macduff to see how he handles things and what he ultimately is able to do. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It is really fascinating. I have to say, I've always been really moved by that passage. I must feel it as a man. Like, I think it's really great, but it's Mm -hmm. interesting because Malcolm also brings along Seward and Seward when his son is killed, which happens just after that, at the end of the play, you know, his first question, Malcolm is saying, you know, we're going to grieve for him and, we're going to grieve for him because he's learned that lesson from Macduff. And Seward says, well, did he have his hurts on his front? Which means, you know, did he only get attacked from the front or did he get hit while he was running away? And they say, no, he was, his hurts were on the front. He's like, well, then he died like a man. We're not going to grieve for him at all. He says he deserves Mm -hmm. no more. Yeah. Which Mm -hmm. is a complete other version of that sort of military man. You know, he did it honorably and that was by the rules. And so I'm not going to feel anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is like strangely the direction then that Scotland seems to be heading as this play closes out. Um, yeah. yeah, and Scotland in a lot of ways is also kind of defined by masculinity. Like Scotland is a very masculine place in this play as well yeah. um, in a lot of different ways, which is interesting. And then we've got the yeah. witches who sort of like defy femininity or masculinity, right? They have beards and... Mm, and yet they mm-hmm. are women or they're defined as women by, you know, uh, Macbeth and Banquo. Um, and I think part part of the reason they have been, I imagine that the witches have been cast out from society. Um, and I think part of that reason is that they do defy those sort of like black or white, this or that norms of the time. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. This is this is just trivia. But in the folio, the sort of version that, that is printed in Shakespeare's time, the witches don't have names. They're just one, two and three. Mm-hmm. And the other person who doesn't have a name is Lady Macbeth. She's just lady in the script. <laughs> and then Lady Macduff mm-hmm. does have a name. But but I mean, there aren't very many women in this play and they don't get names in this. Huh. Yeah. Okay. But I have to switch gears a little bit on the witches and ask you, Victoria Nassif, since you played one. So... Do the witches really know what's going to happen or are they just, you know, like, do they cause it to happen because they said it was going to happen or do they actually know? What do you think? I, like, I feel like that's the question the play is asking us. Uh, and that's a really hard question to answer. I don't think there is one right answer for me, like inside of a witch. I think that the witches don't have the power to craft the future. I think that... Um, They have a certain amount of power in influencing the people around them, which is what their prophecies do. But I don't think that their prophecies are fate. I think the fact that Macbeth takes their prophecies and runs with them the way he does makes his own fate. I don't know. Does anyone disagree? Yeah, well, and do you think that's your... Oh, go ahead, Victoria T. Yeah. No, I agree. I I think this play speaks so much about the about human action right like doesn't you could be told anything like Macbeth believes the prophecies but it's then when he acts in a way that brings them into being that they happen (laughs) you know and I I I I definitely am on the side that this could have gone a lot differently if Macbeth had acted in a different way um you know I I that's the play I I see for sure 
do you think that's because we're modern people? Like, there's a couple of things. Like, are we? is it because mm. we're modern people and we want to believe that we can control our action and therefore we don't want to say, well, it can't just be fate. But it's also, I mean, the other piece is that we're theater people. Like, we mm. are always looking for what's interesting in a play. And something that's interesting is in a play is if the people who are involved actually cause something to happen. Mm-hmm. So we would naturally, as theater people, say, well, if it's just already going to happen, then why do we even have to do the play? It's already going to happen. Like, do you think mm-hmm. this is about us being modern people? Or do you think... You know, that's what the play is really saying. That's so interesting. I think that part of it is about us being modern people. Because if I'm correct, Victoria, James I believed in witches and believed that they had real powers, right? That, like, they could shipwreck a ship. Totally. Yeah, I, The there is no doubt. I think that there is no doubt in the world of this play or in the world when Shakespeare was written that supernatural forces existed. <laughs> or, or that they... But then in a way, it was... Um, the, the existence of these kind of more demonic figures was recognized as evidence that the existence of God as well, right? Like if there were witches, then there was a God as well. So, you know, it, in that way, it is interesting to look at how people may have viewed the witches uh, sitting in Shakespeare's audiences for sure. But King James I was like a fan. Or, or I think that another reason, speaking in terms of King James I as being like the patron of this, of Shakespeare's company, he was into this, you know, like he, he wrote a book. He wrote a book called Daemonology. <laughs> and a lot of the witchcraft in the play is from the book. Mm. Um, so so it was definitely topical too in that way. And I think I think it's also fun, you know? Like I think people would have watched it and been like, the same way that we find them fun today too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I feel like well, there's I, part of the modern psyche that does buy into fate in a way. And we think about like astrology and people, mm-hmm. you know, assigning the stars or the position of the planets um, <laughs> force in their lives day to day. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess that's why we're doing this play 400 years later, is it really gives us a lot to talk about. So hopefully you can discuss that. Is fate a real thing or do we control our own actions? Is it okay to do a little bit of evil if you're going to create some more good later on? I mean, all of these questions, um, all these questions are the things that, that we're still talking about in this play. I, I think that's where we have to leave it today for this podcast, even uh. though we could go on and on about this. But um, I hope you're enjoying <laughs> listening to the podcast. Um, and I hope you enjoy the conversations that you get to have uh, about Macbeth now. Victoria and Victoria, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, and, thank you. Um, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for everybody listening, please come to Winona someday and see one of our plays live. And then we'll talk about it with you. <laughs> All right. So long. All right. Bye. So long, everyone. This has been a production of the Great River Shakespeare Festival. This activity is made possible by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Minnesota State Arts Board thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.